Good morning, and I meant that. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis 19, we will finish out this chapter today, Lord willing. Genesis chapter 19, and our reading today will begin in verse 30 of that chapter. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We celebrate that we get to join together on this the Lord's Day, to sing together to you, to pray together with one another, to encourage one another, and to open your word before us, that we might hear from you from the pages of Scripture. Now, Father, as we come to this passage, we recognize it as a difficult passage. I pray, Father, that you would help us to draw from this concluding section on Lot what we ought to, that we would understand about the fear of you, that we would understand about the influence of the world, that we would come from this time having been encouraged to follow you despite what the world around us would teach us, and despite the things that seep into our thinking and into our values from the world around us that, that we don't know about. So we pray, Father, that you would minister to us even in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes I confess I have a little bit of a dark uh, sense of humor. Uh, one of my favorite quotes goes as follows, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. I didn't make that up, but I appreciate it, and that might have been a good title for Lot's life. It's a little bit long of a title, though, and I also thought about, uh, and Lot was taken along as a title for this message or for Lot's life. Lot is quite a character. And as we uh, have thought about um, this passage that we're looking at today, this concluding section on Lot himself, no doubt many of us have cringed thinking about uh, how we're going to cover this, thinking about um, the, the issues themselves that are represented in this text and in the life of Lot, uh, particularly with his daughters here at the conclusion. Maybe we've just thought about the fact that we have uh, little ears in our service with us today. And as awkward as it is for us as adults to talk about these things, we have the added sensitivity of there being uh, children in the room today. And all of those things I resonate with, all of those things have caused me to, uh, to cringe a little bit as well and to anticipate what uh, we might do in today's message uh, to learn the lessons of this uh, text in a way that will be helpful and beneficial to us, and not only uh, cringeworthy. But as we have anticipated this and, 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 and led up to this section about Lot and his daughters, we need to have the courage to look this text in the face. We need to have the courage to see uh, what it says for a couple of reasons. First of all, God is the hero of the Bible. The 
heroes of the faith are not the heroes of the Bible. And so when we open the Bible and we look at a difficult passage uh, telling us difficult things about our predecessors in the faith, our own faith is not shaken by that. Our faith is not built upon how godly a man Lot was or Abraham was or Peter was, right? And so we can open up Scripture and see that it's different than uh, typical world religions where uh, our, our book from God that tells us the history of redemption points out those involved in that redemptive process, warts and all. And we're not surprised to learn that our heroes in the faith are uh, men with feet of clay. And so we're not disturbed in that sense when we come to look at this passage. But secondly, our culture is more than happy to teach us and our children all manner of sexual perversion. And so we need to look this text and we need to look this topic full in the face because we want to learn from Scripture about sexuality. We want to learn from Scripture the truth about how God has designed us and what He has created sexuality for and all the ways it might be perverted and the results of those things. We want to understand in the light of Scripture. And the times are changing, aren't they? It seems like a lifetime ago now that one of the biggest points of conflict between Christians and non-Christians was the Christians' belief that sex was restricted to the confines of marriage. Remember when that was the big deal? How times have changed. That, that's like a passe conversation nowadays. Our society has progressed, right? Well then, until about five minutes ago it seems, the, the biggest point of conflict uh, that there was uh, between Christians and non-Christians was that we insisted on defining marriage as between one man and one woman. You don't have to think as far back to remember that one, but folks, society has progressed even beyond that. That's yesterday's conversation. Now Christians are considered backwards because we believe that there are only two genders. How things have changed that's the progress that we see. Now, we still have to be clear as Christians that any sexual relations outside of marriage is a serious sin. We still need to hold that line. We still need to be clear on that topic. And we still have to be clear that any homosexual union, regardless of whether someone calls it marriage or not, is a serious sin. We still must hold that line. We don't give up that line. But that's not really the, the, the battle line right now. That's not really the fight that's going on. Those battles are still being fought, but the battle lines have moved into new territory that we would never have imagined just a few years ago. And we have to be prepared for these new battles as well. Woe to us if we fight yesterday's battles today. Often, we as Christians can be just a little bit behind, just a couple of steps behind, and the battles we're fighting are not the battles that need to be fought. Those lines need to be held, but that's not the cutting edge. That's not the conversation. That's not the point at this moment. And so we want to understand, we want to be prepared for the conversations of our day. But that's hard. I mean, we're, we're Christians, and so we're uh, more proper in our conversation. We're more polite in the things that we talk about. Sometimes we're embarrassed. But let's not be so proper or polite or embarrassed that we are unwilling to work through difficult texts like this one and help our children understand the point. Help our children understand how God has designed sexuality. Let's not be so proper that we can't open that conversation. Because, folks, if you and I don't have that conversation with our children, with our grandchildren, if, if, if we let it be too awkward for us to talk about together, the world would be more than happy to teach us. And that's what is happening again and again and again to children who've grown up in Christian homes and Christian environments where they get bombarded with these sorts of topics and they're utterly unprepared, not because their parents or grandparents or church or, or upbringing uh, didn't, didn't value biblical sexuality, but didn't discuss and help them understand all the ways 
that the world will pervert that. The ways that, that uh, the, the world looks differently at sexuality than we do. Usually it's because it's awkward and I get it. I'm the guy standing in front talking about this with all of you. My children are here. It's awkward. I get that. But know this, the areas where we are unwilling to disciple our children, the world will be more than happy to disciple them. And the world is doing a great job. Folks, let's let you and me do a better job discipling our children in these and in other areas. So, we come to our last section here on Lot himself, and we're going to take a look at this and, and, and see uh, what we can learn. And today, uh, I've titled our message, Learning from Lot, because we're not just going to look at this section. I want to look at Lot's life in general, and there's, there is uh, plenty for us to learn from Lot's life himself. And so, we, we go, first of all, to a telling backstory just to go back and look at Lot's life and kind of get up to speed about how we got where we are and who this man is and what he has shown himself to be like. Back in chapter 13 and uh, verses 5 and 6, we saw that Lot had been taken along with Abraham into Egypt. And he became so wealthy while he was there that when they came back, the land was not big enough to hold him and all of his property and Abraham and all of his property. So he, he, he went down into Egypt with Abraham and came out wealthy, amazingly wealthy, so much so that the land couldn't hold him. Well, then later in chapter 13, we see that, uh, that they, have to, uh, they have to divide and separate. Their, their people are squabbling with one another because they're living too close together, and so they decide they're going to have to separate. And, and Abraham uh, being the leader, Abraham being the uncle, Abraham being the representative, in this case, he, he gives Lot the choice. Where are you going to go? If you go that way, I'll go the other way. If you go this way, I'll go that way. And, of course, we read there that Lot chose the Jordan Valley. He didn't choose this portion of the land of Canaan. He didn't choose this portion of the land of Canaan. He decided to leave the land of Canaan and go into the Jordan Valley there to live in those cities. And why did he do that? What was his motivation? How did he make his decision? Well, it's because it's well-watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. That's a fateful moment for Lot. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So we saw this separation that they've moved into different areas, and Lot has chosen where he's chosen to live because it's a soft land. It's a rich land. It's well-watered. There's wealth there. There are these cities there. Look, there's this great city called Sodom, and he moved right up to it. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Well, then we saw in chapter 14 of Genesis that Lot was taken along again. But this time as a prisoner, remember when the invading armies came and, and, uh, and captured that area and took all of the people and the possessions of Sodom and the, and the surrounding areas and, and, and hauled them off. So he's been taken prisoner along with all of, all of his possessions and, and Abraham has to come rescue him. And so Abraham comes in and he saves the day and he rescues uh, Lot and he brings uh, all of his possessions and, uh, and brings him back to Sodom. And remember in that passage, we met the king of Sodom. And we saw what he was like, that, that uh, he, uh, he was the one who was, was gruff and, and, uh, and, and pushy with Abraham. He was the one that Abraham recognized his character and said, I'm not taking a, a shoelace from you, pal, lest you say that I made Abraham rich. Abraham recognized what the king of Sodom was like, recognized what his character was like. And so Lot has come and he's settled down in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's become a prominent citizen. Remember when the angels show up, he's sitting there in the gate. That wasn't just because he you know, needed a place to rest. This was, this was where the elders, this is where the prominent men of the city, the judges, as it were, of the city come and stay. So he's, he's risen to some level of prominence. He's integrated in the city. He's been there for 20-ish years. He's been there a while, and he's made himself 
at home. And here, this man, Lot, who used to travel with Abraham, the man of God, has integrated into this wicked city that we knew 20 years ago was a terribly wicked city. He's integrated himself so much so that he has become a respected member, at least to some degree, of this community that he has chosen such a notorious uh, city before the Lord, this, this city that is, that is it's well known for how evil and wicked it is, and it's actually so well known that it's going to be the place of unprecedented, cataclysmic, visible, biblical judgment. That's the place Lot has chosen to live. We don't know where his wife came from. We meet her very briefly, and then, and then she turns into a pillar of salt because she looked back longingly. There was something about uh, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah that when it was, when it was undergoing destruction, she, she longed for it. There was something, something that drew her attention back there. We don't really know a lot about it. And we don't know where she was from. She certainly acts like she's from Sodom. Her values have been developed from Sodom, wherever he found her. Wherever she's from, she loved that place. And so that's the, that's the backstory, and I think Lot's backstory somewhat prepares us for his disgraceful end, where he's going to be taken along again. And so we come to a disgraceful end, which is the passage we have before us today. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. Do you remember why he moved to Zoar in the first place? When, when the angels were sending him out and saying, get out of town now, head for the hills, he said, I don't want to go to the hills. I'm afraid to go live in the hills. Let me live in Zoar instead. Remember, isn't it a small town? It's, it's negligible. I can, I'll, surely, surely I'll be safe there and you don't have to destroy everything there. And so because he's afraid of living in the hills, he moves to Zoar. In verse 30, it says, Well, he left Zoar, and he went up into the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. What's going on with Lot? He's afraid. He's afraid. The, 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 the dangers around him, whether they're real or whether they're imagined, control his life. He lives in fear. He makes life-changing decisions based upon fear. He's willing to say to two angels, no, not your plan. I'm too afraid to do your plan. I'm going to do my plan. And so uh, what, a, what, a, what an amazing beginning to our, uh, our paragraph today. He was too afraid to live there, so he went and lived in the hills. You'll notice the repetition of his two daughters there in verse 30 lived in the hills with his two daughters. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. It tells you the theme of what's going to happen. And keep in mind at this point that remember our, our backstory about Lot, that when he went down into Egypt and came up out of Egypt, he came up with so much wealth that he and Abraham couldn't even live in the same region. That was how wealthy he was. It was mostly Abraham's, but it was, it was his in large part as well. The, the, the wealth that was, made it so great that he, that he felt like they had to separate so far they couldn't even see each other. They, they moved days apart, and now he, he has nothing. Everything he owns, including his two daughters, and he can fit in a cave. How he's come down in the world. Verse 31, And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, the, the firstborn daughter, the, the oldest daughter here, she, she senses something. She's, she's motivated uh, by the fact that her father is, is old. His, he's too old to, to, to do something. He's too old to accomplish their provision, is the point. What she thought his age had to do with you know, them living in a cave and, and his age is the problem, not living in a cave. I don't exactly know. Maybe he's too old to, to go and find husbands for us. Maybe he's, maybe he's too old to move us to a new region again where there are people and he can find uh, husbands for us and things like that. It doesn't really say, but, but she's motivated by the fact that he's too old. 
and we're stuck. She's got a problem. She senses a real problem there. She's not going to have a a man. She's not going to have a husband. She's not going to have offspring. She's stuck. She's at the end of her rope. Verse 32, in this sense of urgency that she that she, that she felt, that she sensed from their desperate situation. And it was a desperate situation when you're living in a cave because everything around you has been destroyed. You're too afraid to live in the one town that does exist. You can still smell the sulfur in the air. Uh, yeah, I mean, things are dire, right? She's desperate. She really is desperate. But this is the solution she comes up with in verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our Father. I don't know where I have ever heard of a worse plan. I don't know where I have heard of a, of a more debased, confused, twisted, depraved plan. Now, we've seen some, and by the way, we're going to see more in Genesis, and we see them around us, but this plan right here sounds like it comes straight from Sodom. We've already seen that sexuality had been terribly perverted in Sodom and Gomorrah, and and she's carried it with her, that that she would think of such a plan, that the solution that comes to her mind is to get her dad drunk and then go lie with him so that she could have a child by him. It's dark. It's dark. Verse 33, so they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So they, they, have, they don't have much in this cave, but apparently they've got adequate wine to get their father very drunk. So much so that he doesn't even know what's going on. He, he has no clue. He has, he has no self-control. He has no, in, uh, no inhibitions. He's, got, he's, he's completely inebriated. He's completely uh, mentally incapacitated. And the firstborn takes her chance. She having concocted this plan, and she goes in. So, this is a debased situation. And there is no way to excuse this. And Christians don't need to look for a way to excuse this. The Bible is very clear about the sins uh, of our forefathers. It doesn't... um, It doesn't cover over those things. But one thing I want to notice before we move on here is, again, we have a connection in Genesis between the abuse of alcohol and sexual immorality. I mean, Lot was a debased guy. Lot, we don't don't know what all he did or what all of his life was like. We have a peek at it. We know that he's got got a compromised value system to some degree to be able to continue living in Sodom. But I can't imagine that, that were it not for the inebriation, that he would have said, no way. Lot would have stood against this, I believe, and, and I, the daughters believe that as well. That's why they knew they needed to get him drunk. You see the connection between the lowering of the inhibitions that, that comes with the abuse of alcohol that would, that would open the door to sexual immorality of such a depraved and dark and disgusting nature. We saw that already in Genesis. We saw, remember, when Noah and his family, after the flood, they've landed and he plants a vineyard and he drinks and becomes drunk and, 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 and there ends, ends up being some sort of a sexual scandal in connection with that as well. It's not super clear what it was, but, it's, but somehow it has to do with his nakedness. Again, you've got the abuse of alcohol and sexual immorality. And so that, before we move on, we need to learn that lesson from Lot. We need to learn that lesson from Scripture that alcohol tends that direction, tends to remove inhibitions. And things that, that in, in your right thinking, in your, in your sober mind, when we're sitting here together, you would say, no way, not a chance would I ever participate in that. That's wrong for 14 reasons. And then suddenly when alcohol begins to be abused, that same thing that was wrong for 14 reasons seems like a fine idea. So let's take the caution from Lot's life. Verse 34, the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. 
Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. She didn't wake up with a sense of remorse. She didn't wake up feeling guilty. She woke up thinking, well, my plan worked. Let's do that again. Let's use that same plan again. And so she recruits her younger sister. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. As much as the, as the author here is uh, showing us what Lot is really like, I think he's also showing us that this was not Lot's doing. This was not in character for Lot. This was not normal for him. That, that Lot was a compromised man in all number of ways, and this is beyond the pale even for him. I think the author is trying to demonstrate that to us by repeating that same uh, line again and again that he had no idea what was going on. Lot's not a hero, but he's not that kind of man. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. That statement right there, by the way, would be an abomination in any of the surrounding regions. That there was rampant sexual immorality in the cultures around Abraham and around Lot and the, the cultures around where um, hundreds of years later the people of Israel are going to come up out of Egypt and go into the land of Canaan and all the surrounding cultures that are going to be there, that statement would be abhorrent to them as well. No one could read that statement without doing a double take. And here is Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his two daughters. These are These are, these, are, these are right to close to the center of God's redemptive work. God's people. We're going to learn about Lot. He was, he, was, he was God's man. He was righteous. And yet this is what he falls to. It's dark. It was a, an abomination, even in, the, even in the dark cultures around this place. Verse 37 Firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So we have introduced here the Moabites and the Ammonites. And if you, if you remember the future history, what's going to happen after, after the people go down into uh, Egypt and they're, and they're there for 400 years and as they're, as they're coming up out of the land, they're going to be dealing with the Moabites. They're going to be dealing with the Ammonites. And this tells uh, where they came from. This tells what is their backstory. And, by the way, Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us what their future is going to be. That, that these two nations that, that arose out of, out of such a union, out of this incestuous union they're, they're, that, that was brought about in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're living in a cave because Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. That the, the two nations that come out of that will end up just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Much, uh, let's see. I mean, uh, Zephaniah chapter 2, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. Their beginning is in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah and their end is going to be identical. These are the people who come out of this union between Lot and his daughters. So Lot comes to a disgraceful end. And we don't hear anything else about his life after this. We don't know if he died in the cave. We don't know if they moved on and went somewhere else. We don't know if he got remarried. We don't have any idea. The only thing that we learn about the future history, the future happenings regarding Lot is the Moabites and the Ammonites. Lot disappears. He's off the scene. What a disgraceful end for a man who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees with his uncle. 
a man who traveled so much, a man who had been blessed in so many ways, a man who had been taken down into Egypt, and then because of his uncle's lying, remember in that context where Abram uh, Abram said of Sarai, tell him that, that, uh, that you're my sister. And, and that, well, it, was, it was in that context that Lot becomes wealthy. Lot had been blessed in numerous ways. Lot had been, had been told by the man of God, Abraham, pick wherever you want to live, and it's yours. Great beginnings. And what an ending. An ending in disgrace. So we, no, we hear nothing else in Scripture about Lot except for a couple of references to his name. And those references are surprising, particularly Second Peter. So we, we read about Lot's disgraceful end, and now we're going to read about his surprising righteousness. We, we've finished the story of Lot. There's nothing else to tell about Lot. We've covered all the details, we've covered everything we know, and would any of us describe him as righteous? Only if you've been asleep for the last two sermons, right? Which hopefully you've not been asleep for the last two sermons. He's called a righteous man. Well, what is righteousness? Before we turn to the passage and and look there at, at 2 Peter, righteousness means conformity to God's character. And righteousness is demonstrated, it is shown by obedience to God's law. Have we met anyone like that yet? No. Certainly not Lot. Lot has shown himself not to be righteous in his character. And probably the clearest example of him not being righteous in his character is when he was willing to offer up his daughters to be mistreated and abused and probably killed so that he could preserve the honor and safety of his guests. He's not a law keeper. He's clearly not righteous yet. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 all the way in the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read, there's a, there's a paragraph there that has, has, is very encouraging. We looked at that last Sunday evening in evening church. But today we want to look just at verses 7 and 8 that have specifically to do with Lot himself. Peter says that while, while destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, God rescued righteous Lot. I mean, Peter was a fisherman, and, it, and some, some people claim that his command of the Greek language wasn't that fabulous, but he said he was righteous. I don't think we can blame that on any deficiency in Peter's language. He said, if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed, Lot being greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, So yes, Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was greatly distressed by the conduct of the wicked. Verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Nearly every word of those two sentences is surprising. How can that be? Righteous Lot is a righteous man with a righteous soul? How can that be? Well, to answer that question, we have to understand the Bible's answer for how any sinner can be called righteous. So how can we who are sinners have righteousness? Well, Paul speaks of that in Romans 1.17. If you remember our time going through the book of Romans, you remember in your own Bible reading, Paul addresses that topic. He says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. True righteousness is only available to us through faith. Well, how can simple faith lead us to being called righteous. 
Paul continues in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. He said, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So we'll pause there. Righteousness shows itself in law-keeping because the law is a reflection of God's character. And righteousness is uh, acting and behaving and living in accordance with God's character. And so righteousness shows itself in law-keeping, and yet Paul can say the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's not just simple faith if you have faith, some vague faith, and you'll be called righteous. That the important thing is that you be a person of faith. It really doesn't matter what you believe, or, but that you, that you be genuine in your faith. That's not the point. That's not biblical teaching. That's not what Paul is saying here. That, that it's specifically faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ is how one can be counted as righteous before God. In other words, the righteousness which pleases God is that which is ours through faith in Jesus. Well, it still doesn't answer the question. How can it be that righteousness is counted to us by faith in Christ? How does faith in Christ mean that sinners are counted righteous? Well, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, remember Paul who spent his life before he came to Christ trying to demonstrate and prove and improve and polish his own righteousness, his own obedience to the law, the one who had excelled all of his peers, who was ahead of everyone around him, the one who was the the, the most righteous example of someone trying to be righteous uh, by law-keeping in his own power, Paul, that Paul, says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. That Paul, who had had a resume like no one else's resume, says, I count everything as loss. Crumple up my resume and throw it in the garbage. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My, my list, my... My resume, all of my successes, all my report card, as as fabulous as it looked to all the people around Paul. He says, forget that. What is of value is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is of surpassing worth. He says, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ... And listen to this, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, says Paul, who did a great job, humanly speaking. He says, no, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So when when Peter calls Lot righteous, when, when any sinner can be declared righteous before God, it's because of this. It's because of the righteousness of Christ that is counted as mine by faith. And so Lot, who is such a man, Lot who's, who's hard to read about, isn't he? I mean, we, we've, we've seen some uncomfortable things in Genesis, and Lot is pretty close to the center of that. He's hard to read about. He's such a sinful man. He makes such decisions that are hard to comprehend. And then we come along and read Peter, and Peter talks about righteous Lot, that righteous man with a righteous soul. Remember him? And we're saying, no, I don't remember him. Maybe you misspelled, you know, Abraham. (laughs) When Peter calls Lot righteous, What Paul describes is the only way that it it can be true of him. We know too much about him. Lot was a believer. Lot had gained his righteousness. He could be called righteous by Peter who is writing Scripture purely by faith. 
He had none of his own to show. The closest thing to righteousness that he has shown is when he, when he sought to protect the guests. The two angels who came into Sodom and Gomorrah. And even in doing that, he did so by sacrificing his daughters or offering to. And yet, Peter can call him righteous. This is the only way. Folks, we, we look at Lot and we think, he's the worst of the worst. And, 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 but if we thought about our own sin, if, if someone were writing Scripture about your, the story of your life, the, the inner thoughts, the, the things, the decisions that you've made in, in, in the dark or when no one's around or, uh, or in your past or that you contemplate now. The, 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 if someone were to write Scripture about those dark things of you, we would be different than Lot, but only a little different. That when we think about the the absolute high standard of what righteousness means, reflecting God's character in your actions, in your thoughts, in your words. Does anyone even approach that? Do you? Do I? I mean, Lot didn't approach it, but me neither. How can I be called righteous? How can you be called righteous? It's only by faith in Christ. Jesus himself who was the righteous one. Jesus himself who always accurately, perfectly, to the T, reflected God's character in his actions, in all of his words, and even in the the thoughts of his inmost heart, reflecting God's character. He went to the cross to to take the penalty for my lack of righteousness, my unrighteousness, my opposite of righteousness. And the penalty that I deserve is placed on Christ. And he bore that penalty to the death. But then God raised him from the dead. The penalty's been paid in full. And so by faith in Christ, I receive forgiveness as my sin is, is attributed to him. And I receive righteousness. So that I, such a man, I, you, can be called righteous, though you are such a person. And so this righteousness that is lots is amazing. It is surprising to us, and, it, and it's beautiful. If 2 Peter chapter 2 didn't exist, if, we, if Peter had gone from his list and skipped right over Lot and, and gone on, what, what conclusions would we come away with about Lot? We would learn some lessons from Lot's life. Don't be like Lot. And that's the majority of the lessons we learn from Lot's life. But he trusted his Savior. He was counted righteous. And so in that sense, that's a great lesson to learn from Lot, one we can follow. But in all, Lot's life is a cautionary tale, point four. As we wrap it up, I struggle how to wrap up his life. I struggle how to uh, sum up what we learn about Lot himself. But just some, some points for us to keep in mind. First of all, he is a man who always seems to be taken along. Lot doesn't lead anywhere. Even when he comes out to uh, to the rescue the two visitors who've come into Sodom and Gomorrah, he can hardly talk them into it. He just struggles to lead. He, he struggles to do anything other than be taken along. And in the end, how is he rescued from the city? Because the angel grabs him and drags him out. He's taken along. He was taken along with Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldeans. He's taken along down into Egypt. He's taken out of Egypt. He's taken along when he's taken captive. That's He's an ineffectual man. He is led always by the world around him. Even his daughters in the end, don't they? His daughters, the people who are directly under his authority, the most uh, uh, of, of anyone, he's already lost his wife, and they lead him along. So he's a man who's always being taken along. Secondly, his sensuality. 
continually gets the better of him. Comfort. Uh, safety, something. I, we don't know exactly what it is, but, but he, he craves that. When he's, when he's given the option of where in the land to go, he picks the lush valley. Yeah, it's you know, populated by evil people and these evil cities and things like that, but that looks like the place to go. He's, he's continually tripped up by his sensuality. Even his, his original choice to go into Sodom was based upon his sensuality. And then he twice chooses to move to a pagan city rather than to go elsewhere. He was tormenting his righteous soul, Peter says, and yet, and yet he lingered, didn't he, in Sodom. The clock was ticking. You know, the buzzer was about to sound and the, and the, and the, the fire and brimstone was about to pour out of the sky just exactly as the angels had said. And he's lingering. Why would you linger in such a place? But he did. And then we have an ironic twist with Lot, who was once willing to sacrifice his daughters. And in the end of the story, they're sacrificing him. And then finally, fear seems to run his life. And I think that's connected with the sensuality. He feared circumstances more than he feared God. Can you imagine being willing to say no to an angel? Now, whether he knew at that point they were angels, I think he did because of all the goings-on. But when they say, run to the hills, don't look back, go to those hills. And he says, I object. Can you imagine that he, he valued something more than obeying what the angel told him to do? He feared circumstances. He feared aspects in his life. Perhaps he feared people. Perhaps he feared being uncomfortable more than he feared God. And so he made such decisions. And look, look what it got him. There's more we could think about regarding the life of Lot. And, and some of it, some of it, it granted, is speculation. We're drawing some conclusions and, 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 uh, and making some suppositions about him that, that uh, Scripture doesn't explicitly say, but, but his, his, his life is such an example of an ineffectual man who, yes, has faith, but he's compromised. And so on one hand, there's encouragement there because because sometimes we feel compromised. You know, we're not always always crushing it in the the spiritual life. I mean, even even Peter himself, maybe maybe Peter looking back on Lot thought, you know, I can kind of relate a little bit because Peter sometimes is winning the day. Like he's he's the one we want to follow. And at other times, he has made utter shipwreck of his faith, denying the Lord three times sticking his foot in his mouth with Paul in the incident with the Galatians. And yet there is hope there because even Lot, even such a man, even such a compromised man, he had faith. Faith in his Savior. Such that the Holy Spirit would call him righteous Lot. So there is a degree of hope there. But mostly, the life of Lot is a life of warning. And so I want to make some points of application and wrap it up. First of all, think biblically about sex. The world will not, the world will not help you. The, Lord, the world will bend in every way what the Lord has said about sex. Think biblically about sex. Be sure that your views on sexuality come from God and His Word. By the way, that's not a given. Just because we're here in a church doesn't mean that we all have biblical views about sexuality. We should all examine by Scripture our views on sex itself. Make sure that our views on sexuality come from God and His Word and not from the world and its values. We have imbibed deeply from our modern age. And if we could have a visitor from 200 years ago to talk about about the topic of sexuality we would find a vast difference, though they are Christians and we are Christians. We need to think biblically. We need to, we need to test our beliefs, our assumptions, our values about sex according to Scripture. Secondly, teach your children about sexuality. Teach your grandchildren, teach your family how to think biblically about sexuality or the world will be happy to do that. 
And they are, they are in the midst of a full court press right now. It's hard to read the news without reading something specific about what, what is going on in some aspect of our culture. Where, where sexuality, and, and not just sexuality, but a twisted sexuality is being pushed on. Kindergartners. Teach your children about sexuality. It's awkward. I know. It's just as awkward for me as it is for anybody else. Oh, well. We have the privilege of having the truth about the topic from the one who invented it. Teaching us how to understand it. Let's pass that on to our children. Thirdly, learn to fear God more than your circumstances or others. Learn to fear God more than your circumstances or others. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's the world we live in, right? They, they can kill us. Chances are great we're not going to be killed for anything we say. Even some of the stuff I've said, probably not going to get me killed, right? We don't... That's not, that's not a real danger we face, and, and yet I, they might look funny at me. They might say something bad about me. They might not like me. Now, those things happen to me and to you, to Christians. That, that's a normal thing. Jesus says, okay, ratchet that up times 10,000. Let's say they kill you. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We're, we're, we're not even... The, the things that we fear, the things that we are willing to bow down to, in subtle ways, of course, in subtle ways, and it, you know, I'll, I'll temper the way I say this, or I just, I'll, I'll leave that part out, or I won't say that thing, or, or, or I, won't, I won't have that, that, uh, that difficult conversation, or, uh, or, or whatever, because... Because I'm afraid. He says, really? You're afraid of that? And you're willing to say no to the angel when he says, run to the hills? That's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. We are dealing with the living God. What is beyond his capacity? And he has declared, Christian, that he loves you enough that he gave his only son. What's he going to hold back? So when the angels say, run to the hills, you run to the hills. When God says, it's important that you stand for truth, and that might mean a point of conflict, okay, gently, lovingly, you have that conflict. doesn't matter how afraid you are, learn to fear God more than circumstances or others. There's more to say on that topic. But finally, Take steps to mitigate the influence of our Sodom. Think about what you watch. Think about the impact social media has on you. How do you or your children think differently now than they did just a few years ago? I see statistics, and I, I, can't, I can't quote them right off the top of my head, but about the number of teenage girls who are depressed has multiplied ridiculously since the rise of social media. We think differently. How do you think differently than you did just a few years ago? How do your children think differently than they did just a few years ago? We all need to recognize how much we are being influenced by the world, and then we need to take steps to fix that. Jesus teaches us the importance of taking even drastic steps to remove unnecessary temptation in our lives, right? You remember uh, this passage from Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Of course, he's speaking hyperbolically. He doesn't want anyone to gouge out their eye. He doesn't want anyone to cut off their hand. By the way, that wouldn't solve the problem because the problem is in here. 
but he's speaking hyperbolically. He's saying, he's saying if, if there is something in your life that, it, that is a, 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 a temptation that you don't have to face, if you can make changes in your life to get rid of that, get rid of it. Even if it means something drastic, be willing to gouge out that eye and cut off that hand. John puts it differently. Similarly, but differently in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And I'll close with this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, the interesting thing, pausing, the interesting thing about Lot is that we know where he lived. We know who he spent time with. We know some of the decisions he made. But Peter's language there says that Verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 2, that righteous man lived among them day after day. So we can make some assumptions there, but it says he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It doesn't say that he was participating in them. That doesn't mean he wasn't, but it's interesting that Peter puts it that way. But did, did he love the world? Oh man, did he ever. He chose his address entirely based upon the world. And then he was loath to leave it, even though it was about to be burned down. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John here is saying that the, the world forces, as it were, the world thinks in a particular way, values in a particular way, sells things to you in a particular way and of a particular nature that are deadly. And we need to be alert to that. We need to be aware of that, lest we be uh, caught like Lot in the midst of Sodom when the, when the fire and brimstone is about to come down and having to be dragged out forcibly from that place of destruction. Folks, let's, let's be wise and let's, let's not be so, so proper that we, that we can't look at these topics and talk about them, talk about them with our families. We need to be aware of the influence of the world and that it creeps in in all manner of ways, and very often we are like Lot. We move to the place where the influence of the world is the strongest. And we think we're going to be Okay. Lot, Lot experienced his own children dishonoring him in the worst possible way. Them murdering him would have been a greater mercy. The expense was great. The cost was great. So let's learn the lessons of Lot and not be taken along in this world. Let's pray. Father, we have looked at a difficult topic and we didn't go into details on sexuality except it is such a topic in our day that we need to be well educated on. May we be so according to your word. And Father, I pray that we maybe have contemplated ourselves in light of this situation and we realize that we can be a little bit like Lot, that we move to the place where the, where the temptation is actually the strongest. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would look to Christ, that we would look to you, that we would fear you, that we would want to live in light of who you are more than we want to live in light of how great people are around us or how awful they are around us or how important comfort is or any of the other million things that would compete, that we would live life in light of you and the reality of who you are. And Father, I pray that, that we would come away remembering righteous lot, and that we, like him, would look to you, trusting in you for eternal life. And I pray, Father, that you would work in us to make us aware graciously and mercifully, make us aware of where we have moved ourselves into Sodom. And help us to make the changes we need to that would make it easier for us to live in light of who you are and not in light of our own comfort or any other God that we might serve. We thank you for Jesus who has paid the penalty for all those times and we have done exactly that. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for the righteousness that is ours in him. Help us now by your spirit, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.